You know, if, if there's any sentiment that we're feeling right now, all of us are feeling, surely it's the sentiment of uncertainty, isn't it? Like 2020 is the year of uncertainty. No one has a clue what's going to happen tomorrow. Just talking to my wife about this. It, it feels like no one dare write anything in pen. You got to write everything in pencil because you know you're going to have to erase it and change your plans. You can't be sure about anything. I mean, even, even Christmas time, I know you're feeling what we're feeling. We're, we're trying to figure out what's Christmas going to look like. Who can we get together again? We want grandma to come over, but is it going to be possible? Is it going to be too dangerous? We're trying to make plans now, but are they going to be all for naught because we can't be together because someone's going to get sick? And it, and it just feels so amazingly uncertain. You guys feeling that? Like you think about next year, you know, like who knows what's going to happen in the next year? Who knows, am I still going to have a job? I know many of you are wondering, am I going to be furloughed again? Is my company going to make it? Am I going to have a job? Or, or maybe you're thinking, like, I don't even know what the economy is going to look like. And are we going to bounce back? Is it going to get worse? Am I going to be able to even send my kids back to school? Or am I going to be stuck with them 24-7 if they have to go back to virtual learning because the cases get so bad? I mean, what's it going to look like? Some of you are saying, you know, man, I, I had that that vacation plan for 2021. We pushed it for 2021, but I got no clue if it's really going to happen. That mission trip I'd planned in 2020, I'm going to try to do in 2021. I don't know if it's going to happen. Everything just feels remarkably uncertain. And here's what, what happens when it feels uncertain like that. Everything's just penciled in. We are so scared to get too excited about anything that's going to happen, lest it not take place and and it, it break our hearts. So we just decided we're going to put life on pause and we're not going to celebrate anything until we finally get to do it. And that's a terrible way to live because we just don't get to enjoy anything. If you're feeling that, trust me, I know the feeling. So, so just last month in November, my wife and I were supposed to be boarding a jet plane, flying off to the other side of the world to get to go to, to Israel, to the Holy Land. We had a trip that had been planned for the whole year before, November of 19, or 2019. My wife and I got word that a, a mentorship group I'm a part of, the leader that had found a very generous donor who was going to fund six pastors to get to go overseas, to get to go to the Holy Land, to be an almost all expense paid trip over there for my wife and I and these six other pastors and their wives. And it was gonna be this incredible opportunity for us to grow. And the reason why they were investing in us is because when you go to the Holy Land and you experience that place, you teach the Bible differently. You, your faith grows in that kind of experience. And, and so this was an opportunity again. For my wife and I, we, we've gone a number of years ago, but what I've heard over and over is that you gotta go multiple times to really be able to drink deep of that experience. And so my wife and I were so excited, like, Wow, cannot believe it. In November of 2019, it is locked in. Tickets are purchased. Dates are set. Everything's ready. We got somebody to watch our kids. And every single time we would think about the trip to Israel, my wife and I would get so excited. I'd get tingly all over thinking about walking around in the promised land again. That is until this global pandemic came and all Hades broke loose and everything felt uncertain. And it was amazing as it, as it went along in late spring into summer, I started to realize, holy cow, this thing ain't going away. There's a chance we might not get to go to Israel in November. And it was, it was really odd what happened. What used to be a source of incredible excitement and joy to think about the trip became instead this place of anxiety and frustration, even anger that COVID was going to rob me of my trip to the Holy Land. And it was wild because as long as I thought the trip was certain, I had a whole lot of joy about it. But the moment it felt uncertain, all I had was anxiety. It just reminded me of the power of uncertainty. Now, here's what's interesting. You know, the truth be told, it was never completely certain that we would get to go. War can always break out in Israel. One of our kids could get sick. Something could happen. And I'm not, I wasn't, wasn't going to be able to go on the trip. I mean, it, it was never really certain. But the feeling of certainty gave me the ability to enjoy the anticipation of it. 
but uncertainty robbed me of it. Listen, here's why I want you to know that. Uncertainty has that kind of power. Uncertainty has the power to grab our joy and flush it down the toilet and replace it with discouragement and fear and frustration and anger. And here's the crazy thing. We don't have to live uncertain lives. The only reason we feel uncertainty is because we're putting uncertainty in the wrong place. So if, if you believe in God and, and you believe that God is in control of the universe, which by the way, I hope you do, then there's no room for us to be plagued by uncertainty. We don't put our certainty in our circumstances. Those fluctuate and change day by day. We put our certainty in the God who doesn't change and who's in control of our circumstances and there's zero uncertainty in that. And I think what we need this morning is to remember where our certainty comes from. And Mary is gonna give us that perspective. We're in a sermon series right now looking at the Christmas story, story through Mary's eyes and we're getting a glimpse of how Mary was able to have remarkable certainty in the middle of a whole lot of uncertainty. We're gonna learn this morning how she, in the middle of difficult, harsh circumstances, was able to take her eyes off her present and look to the future that her God had promised her. And because of her certainty of that future, she found, she found remarkable, outlandish joy in the middle of great difficulty. And I think that perspective is gonna help us in our moments of difficulty in this year. We're gonna hear about it in the passage of the Gospel of Luke, chapter one, verses 46 to 55. So if you have your Bibles, Open them up, if you will, Luke chapter one, verse 46. We're gonna be reading something called the Magnificat. It's a, it's a song of praise that Mary gives. Now there's a context to this song. So what, what's happened, last week we talked about this. Mary was visited by an angel named Gabriel and the angel Gabriel told her, you are gonna be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and you're gonna get pregnant and you're gonna give birth to the Son of God. And then God told her, you're gonna hear more about this next week, God told her that she, her own relative, was gonna see a miracle. Her relative Elizabeth, in her old age, when she was past the age of childbearing, was gonna get pregnant. And so she traveled some 80 to 90 miles from where she was in Nazareth down to the land of Judah to visit her, her relative Elizabeth. And there she got to see Elizabeth pregnant, saw the miracle take place. And when she saw Elizabeth, Elizabeth spoke a prophetic word over Mary, reminding her that what God spoke to her was true. And in response to that word from Elizabeth, she breaks out into this song that we're gonna read about. And I want you to hear about the outlandish joy that Mary has. Chapter one, verse 46, let's read what it says. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. Stop there for a moment. When you read this, you see immediately that joy is just oozing out of Mary's pores. It's like just exploding out of her, this praise and celebration. Just from the words that she uses, verse 46, as Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. That word magnifies, it means to laud or to celebrate. And it means to do it with gusto. In Greek, it's the word megaluno, mega, meaning with, with greatness. It was a mega praise lifted up to God because she just couldn't believe God would be so gracious to let her be the mother of the Savior of the world. The next verse, 47, she says, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. That word rejoice in English, I don't think it carries enough of the weight of the Greek. The Greek word, if you were to translate it more literally, it means to be exceedingly and overwhelmingly glad. Like her, her joy is just flowing from her, exploding out of her. She is so overwhelmed at all that God is doing in her life. And, and there's a side when you read this and you start off in verses 46 and 47, you go, man, 
Life must have been good for Mary. She is so happy. Everything seems to be perfect. I mean, God has chosen her to be the mother of of his son and, and life is just great. Oh man, I wish I could be Mary. But if you think that, that shows me you've never really read the historical context of Mary's life. You've forgotten what we mentioned last week. Because truth be told, there was nothing picture perfect about Mary's life at this time. Honestly, things were happening in ways, her circumstances were such that she never would have mapped out for herself. It was not her circumstances that brought her joy because her circumstances were absolutely terrible. In fact, there were three details about her circumstances you need to know to realize just how outlandish it is that she would have this kind of joy. First thing you need to know is that she was about to have a great shame put upon her. We mentioned this a little bit last week, but here she is and she is about to start showing in her pregnancy and she's gonna give birth to a child while she's not married. And if you remember from last week, she is living in the city of Nazareth And it was a very small country town with very traditional values that severely frowned upon any young lady who got pregnant outside of wedlock. In fact, in many circles, it was punishable by death by the Jewish people. And so she was gonna be experiencing this kind of rejection from her own people and she knew it. And her only excuse was, God got me pregnant. Just just imagine that conversation for a moment. Her friends are coming up to to Mary going, Mary, how in the world could you get pregnant? How could you do this immoral thing? And Mary's answer is, well, no, I, I wasn't immoral. God got me pregnant. <laughs> what are her friends going to say? Mary, listen, if you're going to lie, at least say something better than God knocked you up, all right? Don't, don't use that kind of excuse. Come up with something else because that is a lie. There, there's no way anybody was going to believe Mary when she said that, and she knew it. But that was the only truth she had, and she knew she was walking into this horrible situation of rejection from her own family and everyone else around her. That's not a good circumstance. What makes matters even worse is that she was already humble and poor and needy. You see it in verse 48. It says, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Mary is calling herself in a humble estate. And now almost every historian believes that's referring to her low social class, that she was basically a nobody. She had no power, no prestige, no money, no anything. She was poor and needy and on the outcasts of society. You actually see this reiterated in chapter two of Luke. If you go to that chapter, what you see is that she is so poor that when it comes time to make an offering for her firstborn son, like every Jew is supposed to do, she goes to Jerusalem. She's not able to offer up a lamb like you were supposed to. She offers up two pigeons. And the reason she does that is because in the book of Deuteronomy, in the Old Testament, it tells them that if you cannot afford the lamb, if you were too poor, you had a little uh, caveat that you could offer up two pigeons, and that was the the poor person's offering. And that's the offering that she has to lift up to God because she just can't afford it. She's poor. She's lowly. She's humble. She's got nothing. It it was a hard life for Mary. Back then, to be poor meant you were always worried about where your next meal was going to come from. It meant you were always vulnerable always suffering. That was Mary's life. And to make matters even worse was the third thing you need to know is that that she was very vulnerable to Roman oppression. At the time, there was a lot of, of heat coming from Roman soldiers who would come in and they would extort and they would tax and they would oppress the people around them. In fact, and I feel like I say this every Christmas, but if you haven't seen the Nativity Story yet, that movie, you should watch it because it's a movie that really expresses well all the Roman occupation and and how hard life would have been like specifically for the poor because of the Roman soldiers. They would come in to tax and if you couldn't afford the taxes that they were charging, they would take your land, they would take your animals, they would even take your children and ride off with them as a way of punishing you and there was nothing you could do about it if you were poor and lowly. 
And this was Mary's everyday life, hungry and afraid and overwhelmed. There is nothing about that life that would make any one of us go, praise Jesus, thank you for the life that I have, God, great praise to you. So there's a side when you read this and you know the history, you're going like, okay, what gives? How in the world could Mary sing such outlandish praise to God? In other words, how could she have so much joy when her circumstances were so bleak? All right, so if someone around you right now is sleeping, go ahead and elbow them and say, wake up, Jason's about to tell us something really important because I'm about to give you the secret of how you know to maintain joy even when life gets really, really hard. Here's what Mary teaches us. Mary taught us that her joy did not flow from her present circumstances. They flowed from her confidence in the future that God had promised to her. It had nothing to do with the harsh reality she was living in. All of her joy flowed from what she knew God had promised would be. And that right there is the key for you and for me. The same thing is true. So, so you might want to write this down. I'm going to put this on the screen here for you. Here's what you and I need to know. Our joy does not hinge on what is, but on what will be. It is not our present circumstances. It is, it is our secure future that gives us joy. That's what you and I need to hold on to. Our joy cannot hinge upon our present circumstances, on what is, because those can move back and forth and change. And if you try to put all your confidence in the present, that is shaky ground. Things will fall apart. You'll have ups and downs constantly rocked around by your circumstances. You cannot base your joy on what is, but on what will be. Not this shaky present we have, but the secure future that God has promised us. When we put our joy there, it is an unending joy. It's like a child at Christmas time. We don't put our joy in what is right now. We are on the days leading toward Christmas morning. We can see the presents piling up under the tree and every child finds joy because they know what will be. That Christmas morning's coming when they'll get to open up those presents and experience it. And as long as they can anticipate it, there's always gonna be joy. That's where our joy comes from. Mary was able to have joy even though her circumstances were incredibly harsh because she knew that her humble estate would one day be turned around and God would do her right. God would bless her. God would change her position and exalt her. In fact, this is the very thing that she says in verses 50 to 55. I want to keep on reading the Magnificat. I want you to see how Mary understands one day things are going to change for her. Keep on reading verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of, of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Let's stop there. So Mary says, listen, I know my circumstances are harsh right now. I know I am of humble estate, but I know also one day God's about to flip this world on his head and all those who are high and mighty will be brought low and all those who are humble will be exalted. She was sure of it. And the reason she was sure of it is because she had been raised by Jewish parents who taught her the Jewish scriptures, what you and I call the Old Testament. All over the Old Testament, this promise is reiterated again and again and again that one day God is gonna bring down the exalted and he's gonna raise up the lowly. In fact, there are dozens of passages. I'm going to list two of them for you where you can see this played out. One of them comes in Psalm 107. I, I want you to hear how God talks about the change of fortunes that will come one day. Psalm 107 verse 33 says this. He, talking about God, he turns rivers into a desert 
springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its, of its inhabitants. In other words, all that is lively and flowing will one day dry up. Verse 35, he turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry dwell and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and make them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. He says there's coming a day when there's going to be a great reversal, and all that's flowing water is going to dry up, and all that's dry is going to become flowing water. And those who are powerful and oppress others will be brought low, and the needy and the hungry will be raised up. And it says, the upright know this is coming and they are glad. That's exactly what's going on with Mary. She knew this psalm in that what made her overflow with gladness is, was, to, was to realize that one day all things would be made right and her time would come. But, but it wasn't just Psalm 107. You, you could go over to Ezekiel chapter 21, verse 26. Listen to what he says here clearly. Verse 26, thus says the Lord God, remove the turban and take off the crown. Things shall not remain as they are. Exalt that which is low and bring low that which is exalted. Ezekiel, moved by God, is prophesying things will not remain as they are in this world. God will flip it. What's exalted will be brought low and what is low will be exalted. Mary knew this was going to be true because it was all over the Old Testament. And you and I can know this is true because it's not just over the Old Testament. It's over the New Testament as well. You can look all over the New Testament. You see in the book of James, the half-brother of Jesus, that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. You can look at the Beatitudes. And in the Beatitudes, Jesus says very clearly, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are the thirsty. Blessed are the, those who are persecuted. Why? Because God is going to fight for them. One day God will exchange all these things around, flip this world on its head. And Mary knew it. And because of Mary's confidence, even though she looked at her circumstances and they were bleak and harsh, she could rejoice with an overwhelming joy because she knew one day God's going to set it all right. But I want to make sure you don't make a mistake here and hear me wrong and think I'm saying as long as you know that you're going to be fine. Listen, it wasn't enough for Mary to know this stuff was in the Bible. She had to be 100% convinced it was going to happen or she wouldn't have any joy. Think about what I said right at the very beginning of the sermon. If you remember, I said certainty is what brings joy, but uncertainty is what robs us of joy and brings angst and despair and frustration. Well, it's no different. Mary was in the same boat and you and I are in the same boat. As long as we are not certain about our future, our present circumstances will rob us of all of our joy. We have to be absolutely sure. That's what Mary was. She was certain that God would make all things right. In fact, you see it in the way that she talks about what's going to take place. If you look back at the verses, what you'll realize is that she speaks about the future as if it's already happened in the past. Back in verse 51, she says, he, talking about God, he has already scattered the proud in their thoughts. He has already brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. Now, here's what's so crazy. God hasn't done any of this yet. Mary has not been exalted. The, she's still hungry and poor. And Rome has not been brought low. And the evil leaders are still oppressing. None of this has happened yet. So what gives? Why is Mary talking about it like it's already happened when it hadn't? 
This is a really interesting truth about the Bible, something that can be really confusing. It's called a prophetic past tense verb. This is all over the Old Testament. In fact, primarily from the prophets. It happens whenever a prophet will speak of something in the future as if it's already happened in the past. And it's a way of indicating complete certainty. That future event is just as certain as if it's already happened. This happened in the, in the book of Joshua. Rahab, as she's prophesying, says to the spies who come into the city of Jericho that God has already destroyed the promised land and the enemies who live there and given this land over to Israel. But that hadn't happened yet. Israel was still on the other side of the Jordan. They hadn't even crossed the Jordan yet. She's speaking about a future event as if it's already happened. That's called a prophetic past tense statement. This happened all over the book of Isaiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, all these prophets. It's actually what makes some of the prophetic books so hard to understand because it'll talk about things as if they've already happened when they haven't even happened yet. But it's a way of saying if God has ordained something to come true, then it's as good as done. No one's going to stop that from happening. It might as well be in the past because it's as good as done. It's indicating to us that Mary was absolutely certain beyond any shadow of a doubt that this is what's going to take place. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. She was assured, she was certain that God would change her fortunes. And because of it, she had incredible joy. Now, now I know as you, as you hear me say this, there's some of you going, listen, Jason, I live in the real world. Now, maybe Mary was certain, but I don't know how to be certain of my circumstances. I mean, how in the world can you be sure about anything? Because like you already said, Jason, if 2020 has taught us anything, it said we can't be certain about anything. So how in the world could Mary be so certain all this was going to work out? Well, you're going to hear more about this next week, but let me go ahead and tell you a newsflash. Last week, when we started this whole thing about the angel Gabriel coming to Mary, telling her she's going to get pregnant, there came a moment when she started to feel a baby inside her womb and she had never even been with a man. She got to experience the reality of the miracle of God and she knew if what God spoke was true in the past, what he speaks about the future will be true too. It was her confidence in what was that gave her enough certainty for what will be. And it's the same thing for you and for me. Listen, God, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have seen God be faithful in your past. You have seen God do miracles. If your miracle is nothing more than just your own salvation, how God took you out of the domain of darkness and brought you over to the kingdom of light, how God rescued you from some of your own sins, how he restored your marriage, how he healed you from a sickness, God has done things in your past. And if you look back to God's past faithfulness, that's how you can be certain of your future. But listen, even if you don't have any of that story, I can tell you one thing you can know about your past that'll give you confidence for your future. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you can know that historically there really was a man named Jesus Christ who came on this earth. It has been perfectly attested to through all the historical avenues. And he really was a remarkable man that demanded the attention of the world. You and I know, lived a sinless life. And he really did die on a cross through Roman torture. And you and I know that when he did that, he was absorbing the very wrath of God from us and you and I know three days later, through the testimony of hundreds of eyewitnesses, he was resurrected from the dead, which shows us that the Father accepted his payment on the cross. And because of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you and I can be absolutely certain that what God says for our future is true. We can know that one day God is going to make everything right. We can know that one day, however harsh your circumstances are, however much suffering you may be going through right now, God is going to flip it on its head. And one day there will be no more pain. There will be no more tears, no more suffering, no more death. But all things will be made right. 
One day there will be no more COVID-19. There will be no more Christmases apart from family. There'll be no more warfare. There'll be no more political maneuverings. There'll be no more racial hatred. There'll be no more suffering. There'll be no more family dysfunction. There'll be no more death or sorrow of any kind. No more broken relationships. No more wrecked Christmases. No more financial ruin. All those things gone. Our only experience will be unending joy. And what gives us joy right now is knowing for certain that's our future. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ did. Not because our circumstances look like everything's gonna work out, but because we know this word tells us that child in Mary's womb was gonna make it happen. Our certainty comes from that child, not from us. We can have an ending joy because we know what that child will do. Actually, we can know we have certainty, not just if we know what that child will do, but if we place our faith in that child as well. So I, I got to make a distinction. I, I'm worried some of you have knowledge up in your head, but it hadn't moved down to your heart. And let me go ahead and tell you some bad news. The gospel absolutely is good news, but it's only good news for those who place their faith in it. You see, there's a dark side to the gospel message. And the dark side of the gospel message is that we have sinned and we have rebelled against Almighty God. God loved us. He created us. He breathed life into us. And then we rebelled against him and walked away from him, rejected him and chose our own way over his way. And by doing so, the gospel tells us we have made ourselves enemies of almighty God. And yes, that should make you tremble as much as that makes me tremble. There is a fear that comes with knowing we have incurred the wrath of God because we made ourselves enemies of God. But the good news of the gospel is that God loved us so much he sent his own son to take on flesh so that he could absorb that wrath that we deserved. But listen, we can only celebrate that if we place our faith in Jesus who died on the cross to absorb our wrath. His death on the cross can only atone for our sins if we place our faith in Jesus Christ. And when we ask for mercy, when we plead for forgiveness, that's when we get certainty. That's actually exactly what Mary was getting at in verses 54 and 55. At the very end of this, you hear her bring up this theme of mercy. Look at those two verses again with me. Read those with me. She said, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now here Mary is reminding us about the Jewish tradition. She knew her Old Testament because her parents were Jewish and had raised her to understand the story of Abraham back in Genesis 17 and how God had made a promise to Abraham that he would bless his people. He would have mercy on Abraham and his descendants and especially his son Jacob, who was also named Israel that one day God would remember his covenant and express mercy to them. And all over the Old Testament, you see this plan of mercy to the people of God displayed. But there's one particular passage of scripture I think does a phenomenal job helping us see just how God's greatness to Israel, God remembering Israel results in praise, just like we see Mary do. It's, it's in the book of Isaiah, chapter 44. I wanna read this for you. I want you to see how this remembrance from God results in worship. Isaiah 44, verses 21 to 23. Let me read them for you. It says this. Remember these things, O Jacob, in Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And listen to this. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. And he will be glorified in Israel. 
You, you see this command to sing and to shout. Why? Here's another prophetic past tense expression. For the Lord has done it because he has redeemed Jacob. What's interesting, he hadn't done it yet. That was going to come later in the Messiah Jesus. He hadn't fully redeemed Jacob yet. That was coming. But it's speaking of it in the past tense, even though it's a future event because it was that certain. One day the Messiah would come in the certainty of that would cause us to sing and to shout on the top of every single mountain. It would result in praise because God was going to do what he promised to do. But, but I want to make sure you saw one small little part here. There was something back in verse 22 that I think is key that we can miss easily. Back in verse 22, it talked about how he's blotted out our transgressions. He's taken away our sins like mist. And then he says, return to me for I have redeemed you. See, there was a command there that I think is supremely important. He's saying, yeah, absolutely, I want to redeem you. I want to make you mine. But there's only one way it can happen. You have to return to me. You have to come back to me and find my open arms. Find redemption and forgiveness, and I'll blot out your transgressions and wipe away your sins, and you'll be mine forever and ever. And that's when your certainty comes. So here's my question. Have you returned to the Lord? Have you let the Lord's confidence give you joy? Or maybe I should ask a different question. I'm going to pull up a little higher. I want you to really self-examine here. As you look at your life right now, would you describe your life as a life filled with joy and hope and peace? I mean, when we're in the middle of Christmas time right now, there's all these reminders everywhere with the lights and the music that we're supposed to be happy and cheery and joy to the world and peace and all that kind of stuff. But let me ask you, do all these signs do they actually remind you of the joy you have or do they just emphasize the fact that you don't have any joy, that your life feels hopeless, that all peace seems to be gone? Does it just emphasize how broken your life is right now? Because if right now you do not experience joy and hope and peace, then I think it's because of one of two reasons. Either one, you have not yet come to faith in Jesus Christ or two, even if you have, you are so focused on your present circumstances, you've forgotten the glorious future that is yours in Christ. And I think we need to deal with both of those. I want to start with those of you who are Christians, those of you who are followers of Jesus, those of you who have expressed your faith in Christ through baptism and said, I, I am his and he is mine. Listen, the, the reason why you are a follower of Jesus and you are not experiencing the joy that God has for you is because you are looking at your circumstances and they are not what you want them to be and you are letting that rob you of joy. You are placing your certainty in the uncertainty of your present and that will never work. Remember what I said before. It is always gonna be only when you put your joy on what will be, not on what is. It is not our present circumstances. It is our secure future that gives us our joy. And right now, you have to take your eyes off the present. I know some of them are hard and bleak and difficult. But God will one day make them right. And when you remember that, it doesn't matter what's going on right now. You can still celebrate this Christmas season with joy. In fact, it might be even more important in the middle of this pandemic and all these uncertainties that you feel even more certain that your future is his. And this brief life one day will be over and you'll get to experience the unending joy. And the anticipation of that can give you joy even today. And I think the one thing that can cement it for us is remembering the price that was paid to ensure that joy is ours. It wasn't our good behavior. It wasn't some money we sent to the church. No, it was the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And so we're gonna take the Lord's Supper in just a moment. The band's gonna come up here and we're gonna get ready to do this so that you can remember the security you have. Your future's secure 
because Jesus Christ gave up his body and shed his blood to purchase your redemption. Remember it. Celebrate it. In a moment, we're going to sing a song that's going to get our heart ready as we remember the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. And when that song is over, I'll be leading us and taking the Lord's Supper. But, but before I do that, I've got to say this. I know there are some of you watching this right now and you fall into the first camp I was talking about. The reason why you don't have joy is because you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You've never come to that moment to say, oh God, I entrust everything to you. What Isaiah said is true to you. You have to return to God. God made you. He loves you. He formed you. He breathed life into you. He's been nothing but gracious. But you, just like every other human being, has wandered away from God. You have rejected him and abandoned him. But there must come a moment when you return to God. Let me tell you the good news of the gospel. His arms will be open. If you'll trust in Christ, he'll receive you and embrace you and heal you and give you unending joy. But you have to return to him on bended knee. You have to humble yourself. Join Mary in saying, I know I have a humble situation, but when I'm humbled, God will raise me up. And if you're ready to humble yourself before him, if you're ready to say, Jesus, I need you, then I believe you're ready to take the most important step of faith of your life. You're ready to say, Lord, I wanna be baptized to express my faith in Christ Jesus. Well, we have a baptism celebration that's gonna be taking place today at 4.30 p.m. It's gonna happen at every one of our campuses. So whether you normally attend a campus or whether you're watching online, you still have time to get ready. Here's what I'd like to ask you to do. You can get your phone out and you can text the word next step to 94253. Or if you prefer, just like the slide there says, you can go to fielder.org slash next step. And that's gonna send you to a website that's gonna allow you to fill out a brief form and you can let us know that you are ready to be baptized. Or maybe you have questions, you wanna to talk to a pastor. Pastors are standing by right now, ready to call you in the next hour or two. And we can still counsel with you and you can be ready to be baptized this very evening to express that you are returning to Christ that you are ready to follow him for the rest of your days and you're going to watch God do the miracle of taking your broken circumstances and showing you how you can have joy even in the middle of the pain. If you need to take that step of faith, do it. Listen, I know it's going to be a struggle during this whole next song. You're going to wrestle. Should I? Should I not? We're going to leave that slide up there during the song because there's going to come a moment you need to say, okay, God, I give up. I'll fill this out. I'll text the word next step to 94253. I'll let somebody know because I need to take this step of faith. Do it. As long as it takes, wrestle with it, but do it. For those of you who've already taken that step of faith, get your heart ready. Sing the song of hope, and then I'll lead us in the taking of the Lord's Supper in just a moment. Now's the time.